Uh, thank you, Alex. The, the prayer, give me Jesus. I, I told Alex, I, I'll, I'll never forget sitting with him in a room, in a living room. We were visiting a woman that was just days from the end of her life. And uh, and she wanted to she wanted a, a song as a prayer, and uh, so Alex right there sang "Amazing Grace." Uh, and you ask her, the woman who has since passed away, you ask her what it's all about. She said, "Just give me Jesus." And I want his grace. I just want, I want that to be the end of my story. Uh, beautiful invitation. Oh, Father, thank you for the invitation to have Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus. And may that Jesus that you sent uh, grow in our hearts in the worship today. Thank you for the invitation to be in your, ho- your house. In the name of Jesus, amen. Series of the prophets. The issue that divides. Why? Because what we do with the prophets will make our di- a difference, make an eternal difference. What you do with the prophets, you ignore them, Fine. But it has eternal consequences, beloved. Take them lightly. Eternal consequences. That's Jehoshaphat's cry to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20. When he says, oh, hear me now, you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. And believe his prophets and you will prosper. The difference maker, what we do with the prophets. And last week we found out that that question of prophets goes all the way to the very end of times. In fact, end of time. In fact, at the end will be an increase in prophetic activity. Joel, Acts, Matthew, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 all affirm the final events, the final generation. We'll have to ask the question, what are we doing with the prophets? We're going to spend the next couple of weeks going through the prophets. Going through now one by one, just a few of the prophets. I want to introduce today's prophet with a little line from Bob Goff. Bob Goff, American author, speaker, lawyer. Apparently when Bob Goff uh, applied for law school, he was rejected. It's a heartbreak. What do you do with that? Well, if you're Bob Goff, <laughs> he parks himself outside the dean's office. Gets there when the building opens and stays all day till the building closes. A couple of days in, the dean actually asks him, what, what are you doing here? What, what, what's, what's your end game here? Bob Goff says, I'm staying here until you do 
what you, you, I know you can do to let me in. As the story goes, one Friday afternoon as the dean headed out for his weekend, he told Bob Goff to go buy his textbooks. Because Bob Goff was staying there. Stay in there. So the dean finally relented. And now Bob Goff is a lawyer that's impacted the world over with his ministry through law. Back to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's making this grand statement about the prophets to Judah and Jerusalem. Well, to the north, it's a divided kingdom. To the north, Israel it has a king. That's eh, not saying the same thing. It's the infamous Ahab with his even more infamous wife, Jezebel. That's not what you're hearing from Ahab and Jezebel in Samaria, the Israel, the kingdom to the north. But God raises up, calls a prophet from the hills of Gilead. That's on the east side of the Jordan. Calls a prophet, and suddenly the prophet appears in the throne room. Put it on the text. You got your Bible? Put it on the screen, rather. You have your Bibles? 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. There is, there is no ramp up to the story of Elijah. You, you're getting the ramp up. 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe from in Gilead said to Ahab, the first thing we do is we see Elijah in the throne room of Ahab declaring that as the Lord lives, whom I stand before, that's the New King James in the NIV, you'll read, whom I serve continually, but I stand before. It's this, it's this present continual. I have been standing. I am standing. I will stand. I am there. I am before the king. I mean, I am before God. And he's standing before Ahab saying, I stand before the king, which is why I'm here standing before you. My standing before God puts me in this position right here. He just shows up suddenly. Joseph out to the south is calling on Jude and Jerusalem to embrace the prophets, to believe the prophets, to prosper because of the prophets. Uh, back in Samaria, not so much. So Elijah shows up. Who is this Elijah? Just comes out of nowhere. Not everybody agrees who he is. He comes from the east side. We know Gilead, the mountains of Gilead. He comes from the east side of the Jordan River. So he's crossed over the Jordan River now to meet with Ahab. Some actually think he might be an Ishmaelite. He's not even an Israelite. Others say, and the majority probably side with him being a descendant of, of Joseph. But he shows up. Here's his, here's his story, 60 seconds, my summary. Gil, uh, Elijah shows up from Gilead, unannounced, unexpected in Samaria. He says his big word to the king, then like, uh, like, a, like a guy that knows what's good for him, gets out of town. He heads back across the Jordan River to the ravine called the Kareth Ravine. It has a creek in it. God says, go there. I'm going to take care of you there because the rest is going to just dry up. So Elijah's there for a year. That's where he's fed by ravens. A year later, the creek dries up. Now he's told to go back across, go north now, go way north to Zarephath, a little village. 
Chapter 18 says after he's been there a long time. We know a long time. It's been about two years because the drought lasts about three and a half. About two years later, it's now three years into the drought. He's told to go meet Ahab in the middle of a field. He runs into Obadiah, a faithful servant of God, but a servant to Abraham. And he tells Obadiah, go get your king. I'm going to have a conversation. Obadiah didn't want to at first. You remember the story? Because he said, I'm going to go get him. And then you're going to be gone. We know how you worked last time you made your big announcement. And Elijah says, no, I'm here for real. I'm I'm staying here. They have this conversation with Ahab. Elijah says, "Get, get, get your prophets together. If you think you've got something going here that works, get your prophets. Let's meet on this plateau area of Mount Carmel. Now, it's not the very top of Mount Carmel, but they meet in this plateau area where all of Israel is invited to come meet for this showdown. After the After the showdown, Elijah now goes up to the peak of Mount Carmel where he has this prayer and his servant sees a cloud, uh, an insignificant size, but Elijah says, that's it. Grabs Ahab, tells him to load up his picnic lunch and let's get off this mountain. They go down 31 miles. That's a, a, a marathon plus 10 kilometers. Elijah's running through the rain, leads Ahab to Je, uh, Jezreel. Now he leaves Jezreel, he leaves uh, Ahab there in Jezreel, and then takes off going about 100 miles to the south, Beersheba, where he leaves his servant then. And that's the time that he begins to struggle then with loneliness and exhaustion. We'll get to that in a minute. But he then he, after leaving his servant, he goes 20 miles, a day's journey, it says, it's about 20 miles, out into the wilderness where he has this encounter with God on the mountain in the cave. After he finishes that encounter, God sends him back to the area of Damascus, and he anoints a king and looks for Elisha, his successor, and finds Elisha. Now he teams up with Elijah. They go, their, their concentration is going about reestablishing, rebuilding the schools of the prophet Samuel, that he, the, the schools of the prophets. That goes on for a bit. Naboth, Naboth is killed because he won't give his vineyard to Ahab as a vegetable garden. And, uh, and so Elijah shows back up and tells Ahab he's going to die like Jezebel because of the sin. Well, that scares Ahab a little bit. There's some repentance. And then Elijah... Uh, goes on one last tour. Elijah takes Elisha with him. They tour the schools once again, head back across the River Jordan. This is a bit of going home for Elijah. You have to just understand, he grew up in the mountains of Gilead. Whatever age he was when he, he shows up for King Ahab, he spent his life on the east side of the Jordan. Now God called him. I want you to come out of the safety of where you're at, and I want to put you in the limelight, and I want you to, I want to use you to change the course of history. I want you to step out of your comfort zone, and I'm going to put you here on the west side of the Jordan. Those years of ministry, it wasn't all that long, but those years of ministry, and then God says, I want you to go back on the east side of the Jordan. It was going home for for Elijah. I don't know at what point Elijah knew for certain that he wasn't going back to Gilead, but he always knew that he was going home. And he crossed the east, he crossed the Jordan to the east side, and God had a chariot waiting for him and took him home. And he's been there ever since, which is why 
when the Jews heard Jesus crying on the cross, they said, he must be calling for Elijah because every Jew knew Elijah was with God. It sounds, uh, it's a good story. But, it, but if, if you just hit the pause button and just reflect on the experiences of Elijah, you come to realize that when he left Gilead, when, when God said, I need you, Elijah, I need you to step out, I need you to break the comfort that you have experienced, that I'm going to put you in a place that's going to be... It, from that point on, from crossing the river Jordan, it was one series of tests after another. Well, here's a man who had been faithful to God, yes, but he was unaccustomed to marching into a king's palace unannounced and declaring to the king that because of his sins and his leadership, that there would be a drought. And then God said, okay, I'm going to take you back across. Okay, it was safe, except he was taken to a creek where ravens were going to feed him. Really? And, and what happened the first day that the ravens came? It must have been like, wow, God, this is... But that won't happen again. I mean, for it to happen once is just a miracle, but to happen twice is just a, an impossibility of miracles. But then they came the, the evening, and then the next morning, and then even, and ironically, there's a, there's a little twist to the story. It says that they brought him bread and meat, which is descriptive of a king's diet. So while Elijah was hiding from a king who was struggling to figure out how the, he was going to eat, Elijah was being fed a royal diet. Well, after a year, the, that's nice, but the creek dries up. Imagine the, the, the loneliness, the waiting. Am I, am I pinned down in this ravine for a year? It sounds nice. It sounds safe. But, but I challenge you, go off by yourself. Unplug from your phone and your computer. And go into a ravine. 36 hours from now, you're growing crazy. Elijah's there. Then God tells him, hey, the creek's dried up. Tough life, I know. I need you now to go to Zarephath. Oh, easy enough. Except Zarephath is a Phoenician village. Well, who's, who, who else is from that area? Jezebel? Jezebel is a Phoenician queen. And now you're going to go to her home county where her family and friends live? Everybody knows Jezebel's looking for this guy that showed up at her husband's uh, throne room. Ahab wants to kill him. Jezebel really wants to kill him. You know, as we find out later in the story, when you're Jezebel, you don't mess with Ahab. Mm-mm. But God tells Elijah to go north to Zarephath, a Phoenician village. And you're, I'm going to set you up with, with someone there. Well, that doesn't sound safe at all. Go south if you want to escape Jezebel. Go with Jehoshaphat and Judah, but not to, not to Zarephath. It wasn't that easy. And then when he shows up and he says, ma'am, can, can I have some water and some food? And she says, I, I got nothing for you. Well, God, what are you thinking? You sent me to the lion's den, and now, you say, and now she doesn't even have food for me. You know how that works out? Well, a short time later, or sometime later, her son dies. And what does, the, what does the widow at Zarephath say? You, you 
Elijah's, he's always being accused of being the troubler. You have come to my home to bring vengeance, God's vengeance on me, which is what Ahab will later accuse him of in the, in the, in the field when they meet. Now he's being accused of being the cause for which she loses her son. The resurrection, by the way, of the widow's son is the first resurrection recorded in Scripture. Well, Elijah spends his, his three years trying to escape an angry king who we find out turns over everything to try to find him. He's looked for you everywhere. So when, when he meets Obadiah in the field, he says, don't mess. This is not funny, Elijah. You can, you, can, you can save your jokes for someone else. Because when I go tell the king that you're here, he has turned over the world looking for you. And by Ahab, we assume it was Jezebel as well. Well, then God says, hey, I want you to take on not, I, 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 the prophets. Well, how many prophets are there? Well, there's hundreds of them. 450 of Baal and 400 over there. There's hundreds of prophets. And, and all right. So now he's on Mount Carmel. Confronted with 450 prophets. Now there's other prophets, but there on that Mount Carmel, there's 450 prophets. And we're told that he had to watch them carefully because they were trying to use trickery to, to have their way. He had to watch his own back because if the, 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 the prophets knew if they could get rid of him, if they couldn't get fire on their altar, then the next best thing would be get rid of Elijah and that, that, would, that would spare their necks. So tell me what part of the story of Elijah sounds appealing? There isn't. When God tells him to leave Gilead, it is just one series of tests after another. And then James, the brother of Jesus in the New Testament says, the, the best line of, of the story of Elijah is actually in the New Testament, in my opinion, is, is in the New Testament. Put James's words on the screen. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He wasn't some super person. He was somebody like you. It's been nice living in the foothills of Berthoud or the plains of Johnstown. But God taps and says, I need you. I need you to cross over. And I'm going to use you. It's not going to be easy. Shh. It's not going to be easy. But I'm going to use you. And you're going to change the course of history, Elijah. He was just like us. He was one of the boys in Gilead. Elijah, everybody knew him. Grew up with their boys. But for those years, God says, I'm going to place you in a position to change the course of history. And he did. But without the testing, there wouldn't have been the change. We like the story of Elijah because he left and crossed over the Jordan. If he had never crossed over, we wouldn't even read his story. Mark Batterson, in reflecting on the story of Elijah and Elisha, which we will get to next week, just puts this, his, this little line in his book, All In. Book Melanie got me this last fall, and I've enjoyed, I enjoyed reading it. All In. 
He says, no test, no testimony. The test is what produces the testimony. If there had been no Jezebel, we wouldn't have a story. No Ahab, it wouldn't be worth reading. No famine, ah, not so good. 450 false prophets, not part of the story. It wouldn't be worth it. But because of the testing, we have a testimony. And Elijah's testimony speaks to this day because of the testing. So what does it speak? What do we get from this story? from this life of testing that shows up suddenly. Apparently, the rest of the story wasn't worth including. It was just living in Gilead, safe from the drama on the west side of the Jordan. God said, I need you. I need you to step out of what is safe, what is comfortable. And that's where it shows up. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I stand, before whom I stand, whom I stand before, whom I serve, says the NIV. That's where I'm coming from. That's where I'm coming from, Ahab. And on that, on that comes the legacy. Because of, where, because of where Elijah stood comes his legacy. What was his legacy? Two things. There, believe me, I, there, are, there are several other parts of his legacy that would be wonderful to spend time on. But two, rise to the surface. One, his legacy of prayer. Because he stood before God, he knew how to labor in prayer. James chapter 5, verse 17 says, he was like us. He was like us. Do you know what the rest of that verse is, what the, what, the, what the between the lines of that verse is? Elijah was a man like you. I want you to know that you can be a man like Elijah. That's the, that's the invitation. That's the invitation of, of Elijah's legacy. Legacy number one, because he stood before God, he labored in prayer. He labored in prayer for the people. He crossed over to the west side of the Jordan. He could have stayed safe in the mountains of Gilead and prayed and just been just there, but he knew he had to go insert himself among the people. He had to be a part of their lives. I dream of the day. Let me just hang that on a, hang that, a little cliffhanger for a minute. I'm going to tell you the, the, the day I dream of. But let me read for you Prophets and Kings' description of, of Elijah's prayer life. This comes from this, this story of him interacting with Ahab and Jezebel and the 450 false prophets. This is how she describes his life. Four lines. Now, uh, put uh, Prophets and kings. Line number one. In anguish of soul, he besought God. In anguish of soul, he besought God. Number two. Elijah prayed earnestly that the hearts of Israel might be turned. Do you hear the descriptions of Elijah's life? He, with anguish of soul, with earnestness. Number three. Elijah prayed fervently and simply and fervently. Fervently, with anguish, earnestly. Number four, in an attitude of humility, his face 
She says, between his knees, he interceded with God in behalf of penitent Israel. What kind of, what kind of picture do you see? A man with tears streaming down his eyes, beating on the ground. Please, God, save your people. What's the day I dream of? I dream of hearing people. I hear all too often people coming to me and saying, you know what, because the church, because of that group, because they are wrong about what they're doing, I can't, do, I can't worship with them anymore. I got to go find somewhere that's, that's more holy, more, more my style, more right is what they're saying. I dream of the day that somebody comes into my office and says, Pastor, the church, the church is not correct. This campus is not, is not where God wants it to be. I'm going to be more a part of it. I'm going, to be, I'm going to labor more diligently. I'm going to pray more fervently. I'm going to have more anguish of my soul for this campus, for this church. Well, what do we do? We pack up and go east, back to our safe zones. Why is that important? It's going to be, it's, it's going to be prophetically important in just a second. What if we, what if we, instead of abandoning when, when people are wrong, what if we pour ourselves into them? What if instead of pointing out how the world is wrong, we pour ourselves into it? Ah, beloved. Legacy number two. Legacy number one, because he stood before God, he labored in prayer. Legacy number two, because he stood before God, he had courage to face anything. Ahab, Jezebel, 450 prophets. Courage to face anything. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not telling you you're going like, to like it. But when you stand before God, you'll have courage to face anything. When you stand before God, the idea of, of what's comfortable to you will be abandoned. Ahab didn't scare him. 450 prophets didn't deter him. Alone, because he stood in the presence of God, alone, he stood before these, before these obstacles. It's not a side note at all. It does not escape our notice that Elijah's ministry and what he passed on to his successor, Elisha, was to raise up and to rebuild the schools of the prophets. It doesn't escape us that we are meeting on a campus right here. Young people, students, the elementary school students, high school students, take your stand for what is right. You challenge the teachers. You challenge, you invest yourself in this campus. Where it's wrong, you make it right. Stand for what is right. Don't ask someone else to do it. Take your stand in the spirit of Elijah. As you stand before God, you'll be able to stand before your peers, your classmates, your friends, and even teachers. Stand for what is right. Teachers. Don't expect the administrators and the conference or a division 
or some other entity to fix it. You fix it. Stand for what is right, teachers. Be bold, be unrelenting, as was Elijah. That's God's call for you. Administrators, have the courage to stand for what is right, to do what is right for the sake of reformation and revival and raising up a generation of young people as missionaries. Quit pointing the finger at everyone else that needs to do something from, from the community that is, that is a part of our campus here. Don't point your fingers across the streets anymore. Wow, the schools. Have you heard the schools? What are you going to do about it? Don't point your fingers at the young people anymore. What are you going to do about it? Young people, don't point your finger at the adults anymore. What are you going to do about it? The reason we point the fingers, beloved, is because we haven't been standing in the presence of God. So we don't have the courage. And it's much easier to blame someone else. Amen. I'm fine looking for a job next week if you need me to. But it's time. There's a generation in earth's history, not talking about how old you are, I'm talking about what time it is on the clock of eternity. Pointing the fingers is for cowards and those who are not standing in the presence of God. Elijah could have. He could have pointed his fingers at somebody else. Hey, you guys need to fix that. All the way from Gilead. He could have written a blog, posted something on social media. Hey, they need to fix what's going on in Israel. Have you heard? God says, you're the fix. Now go stand before Ahab. What does his legacy mean to us? What does Elijah's legacy mean to us? You know, Elijah's, Elijah's attack was not on just an ugly idol called Baal. The, the Hebrew word Baal is, means owner or Lord. There wasn't just a Baal. There was a Baal cult. There, were, there was a multitude of gods that were Baals. It wasn't just one ugly idol that Elijah was, was trying to convince Israel to come away from. There's this whole cult experience of, of picking your God. At this particular time, Jezebel had a favorite God of fertility and rain. It was the same God, and so Ahab had that God. So that was kind of a target point. But Baal was not just a God. It was a system of false gods. And the Baal cult has never died out. It was not a time and place. Ooh, they worshiped Baal. Baal cult, has ex it's this idea that something else besides God, the, the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, something else is Lord of my life. That's Baal cult. Do you know how Baal cult played out? Oh, sure, they, they worshiped an idol and they had prophets that, and they had a system of worship. And yes, yes, it was, very, it was very focused on sun worship as well. Yes, yes, it was there. But you know how it played out personally? Two factors, sexual immorality and you get to put into your body whatever you want. It's okay, you decide. What Elijah had to confront was sexual immorality and, and, 
specifically in this time, alcoholism. Hey, I get to decide what goes into my body. I'm, I'm Lord. That's Baal cult. And I'm not so concerned about alcohol, in case you get hung up on that. What else? You say, no, 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 I, I, I put it in my body. I... Exactly. What about sexual immorality? A world of anything goes. Now, come on. I'm not picking on... Uh, there, is, there is much, much greater things to pick on than what I'm, I'm going to say, but it's anything goes. It's, it's just a good example. I'm, I'm right. My sermon, headline news, you know, Apple, they're coming out with emojis. Yep. New emojis, a pregnant woman. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, and they're coming out with a pregnant man emoji. Hey, this is just anything goes. Now, believe me, beloved, ah, come on. If we're going to pick fights, I'm not going to pick fights with emojis. Case in point. Anything goes. You can, do you know, you can change your sexuality or your gender on, on your U.S. passport as many times as you need to. Hey, just tell them. Sorry, I need a new passport. Free. New passport. Got another, I'm, I'm F. Now, uh, M. You can change it. Why? Because it's a whole lot easier to live in a world that there's no, come on, whatever, whatever I decide is right for me. And that's the Baal cult. Which is why Jezebel got so angry. She, she wasn't just trying to defend an ugly statue. Those statues, I don't know if anybody thinks they're worth looking at, but that's not the problem. It's that it provided, it, it was a God who said, you have to satisfy me and I will provide a religion, a, a system, a cult in which you can live to satisfy yourself. And that's what Elijah had to go to Samaria for. It's a whole lot harder to deal with that than to deal with an ugly idol. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Voice of a Prophet, he writes, the secret of Elijah's courage was that he had been with God and stood in his presence. That's what we just got done talking about. That's where it comes from. You don't stand in God's presence, you don't have courage. And by the way, if you're not standing in God's presence, even if you think you have courage and you're going to speak up, we don't, we don't want you to speak up unless you've been in God's presence. The secret of his courage had been that he had been with God and stood in his presence. To stand in God's presence is to prepare a man to stand there's a D that fled before anybody else without fear. You know what I thought of? I thought of all the times that people tell me that they, they have a hard time witnessing. It's, it's scary. It is scary. And I don't know what witness, I don't want to say, I don't want to paint a picture. Sorry, this is a soapbox now. Witnessing is not knocking on some stranger's door. Witnessing is taking the hope of Jesus to somebody in your sphere. You can, go, you can do that. But we're afraid. What if, I, what if they don't, what if they laugh at me? What if they don't like it? What if they, continue with A.W. Tozer. Here's a man who found something that lasted, something that lasted because everything else, the Baal cult was whatever the next thing that came. 
That's the Baal cult. Hey, you like that? Oh, we want this? Oh, the wind blows this way? That's the Baal cult. But Elijah shows up with something that lasts. I stand before God. I have always stood before the same God, which, of course, for the Baal cult was strange. One God? Only one God? You've always only... What? No, says Elijah, I have stood only before one God. And then A.W. Tozer writes, we take things at second hand. We like the story of Elijah. Ooh, good story. But the story of Elijah was meant to be our story. Oh, we were meant to leave Gilead and to go stand before the world. We take things at second hand. We have never had a true encounter with God and we cannot relate our religion to our lives. It's all too true. Husbands and fathers are consumed with their profession while they've abandoned the presence of God in their lives. Mothers and wives, distracted and overwhelmed. Young people, promising that they will get to that when they become mothers and wives and husbands and fathers. We'll get to that someday. That will be important someday in our lives. And then we have a church full of secondhand Christians. Mark Batterson in the book, All In, that I referenced earlier. Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. Faithfulness is not staying in Gilead, not hanging out on the east side of the Jordan where nobody ever bothered you and you didn't even have to get mentioned. Jesus didn't die for that to be made possible. He died to make us dangerous so that we would go to the world. We would have something to go to the world with. We storm the gates of hell. That's coming from Jesus' own words. He said, I want you to build a church. I want you to build it on me. And then I want you to storm the gates of hell. The British revivalist, Henry Varley, preaching his heart out one day when Dwight L. Moody sitting in, his, in, his, in the auditorium listening to, to Varley preach. Took this one line and took it to the world. Some people even attribute it to, to, to Moody, but he, he, he borrowed it from Varley. When Varley said, the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Come on, give me one man. Give me one woman. Give me an Elijah that will leave Gilead and go stand before the world unashamed because they have stood before God. How does it end for Elijah? How does it end? He's now with Elisha. They visit the schools and they head back across the Jordan. He's headed home, his home area, the east side of the Jordan. That's that's where he grew up. He gets over there, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11. As they were walking, there wasn't a destination. They were, as far as Elijah was going, he was going to go as far as Gilead. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly, just like Elijah showed up, suddenly a chariot of fire And the horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. End of story. 
a whirlwind. Ezekiel sees a whirlwind. It comes from the north. It's where God's throne is in the midst of. Job sees a whirlwind. It's where God speaks from out of the whirlwind. When it comes to God and whirlwinds, it's what, it's what hides him as he draws close. It was God himself personally who came down and picked up his servant Elijah. A personal escort by God himself. Come on. Who deserves that? One that stood. One that stood. Except then we have the nagging line from the brother of Jesus, James 5 verse 17. Elijah was a human being even as we are. The implied invitation is to be a human being like he was. Bible doesn't let us off that easy. The Old Testament ends with one prophecy. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6. The very final verses. See, says God, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And then just the first line of verse 6. He will turn the hearts. The last prophecy of the Old Testament is that God will send someone again like Elijah. That Elijah will come in a final generation, right before Jesus comes, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. There will be one last push with the spirit and power of Elijah. Who do you think God's talking to? Those who have been safe in the foothills of Berthoud, those who have been safe in the plains of Johnstown and Milliken, and hunkered down in the quiet streets of Loveland and Fort Collins. He's talking to us. The last prophecy of the Old Testament is a prophecy that God will raise up just like he raised up Elijah. Suddenly, we step out with courage because we have stood in the presence of God and we labor in prayer for God's people and the world he's seeking to save. Fearlessly. We don't, I can't go there. That's outside of my comfort zone. I can't do that. That's, That's too much. Prophets and Kings, by the way, the best volume on the life of Elijah is Prophets and Kings. And I've read a few of them. By far the best volume on the life of Elijah is Prophets and Kings. Ellen White says this, Elijah was a type, an example, a setup, an illustration of us, the saints, who will be living on the earth at the time of the second advent of Christ and who will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, without tasting death, just like Elijah. That he was walking with Elijah and he was talking. He was doing what God had called him to do. He was in the midst of that when God showed up with his personal escort and his chariot and horses of fire and said, Hoop, It's time to go home, Elijah. It's time to go home. And that will be the testimony of the final generation. They will be working fearlessly with what God has called them to do, talking and ministering, and God will show up and say, we're ready. 
The problem with an Advent community is we have become so focused on the Advent, we've forgotten the work that we do. That's why God has not told us the time. He said, stop thinking about the time. You think about the work. Now, somebody's going to walk out nervous about the whole time comment. It wasn't in my notes, if if that helps you. But we've become distracted with the timeline and forgotten what makes the timeline happen. It's Elijah stepping out of the safety of Gilead, fearlessly standing before the world, praying their hearts out, not packing up because the church and because the school and because the community is unsafe for me. They have gone in to storm the gates of hell. Let's go. Let's go. We, you and I, are the fulfillment of the prophecy, the last prophecy in the Old Testament. I'll end with this story. Let me put his picture on the screen. You'll remember him from history? Of course. It looks like every other picture taken in the 1800s, huh? Amen. (laughs) This is Joshua Chamberlain. Story Joshua Chamberlain. He was a professor of rhetoric, a theologian, not a soldier. But when duty called, Chamberlain answered, and he enlisted, volunteered, climbing the ranks to colonel, to colonel in the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry Regiment of the Union Army. A professor, a teacher. You're saying, come on, I'm... I'm not a preacher. I'm not a, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a, an outreach person. I, I'm just a teacher. I'm just an administrator. I'm a medical professional. Don't you know? We have our own jobs. But when duty called, Chamberlain answered. And he joined the ranks of the Union Army on July 2, 1863. A date with destiny. 300, his Chamberlain and his 300 soldier regiment stood between the Confederates and certain defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. I've stood on that little rise. At 2.30 p.m., the 15th and 47th Alabama Infantry Regiments of the Confederate Army charged, but Chamberlain and his men held their ground except the Confederates charged a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time. And after the fifth time, there were only 80 men left with Chamberlain, himself having been knocked down by a bullet that struck his belt buckle. He stood back up. Now he's got 80 men, and he's looking down the slope. It's hardly a hill, but a slope to 4,000 Confederates. And his his young spy up in the tree reports to him that the Confederates are forming rank again. They're coming for time number six. Ah, you know the story. Sergeant Tozier tells Chamberlain that there's no reinforcements coming for his regiment and that each one of his soldiers has one round left. One round good luck. You're on your own. Chamberlain wasn't a 
a military man. He wasn't a soldier. He was a teacher. He was a teacher. But for such a time as this, he tells his men to fix their bayonets and to run down the slope. On July 2 of 1863, 80 Union soldiers bring 4,000 Confederate soldiers to surrender because of one word. And it's the word Chamberlain led with as he ran down the slopes. Charge. Charge. What happened at Little Round Top in Gettysburg, they say changed the course of what would have been history. What happened when a man from Gilead heard God's call and stepped out of the shadows and charged, changed the course of history. And history needs to be changed again. Charge. Beloved, young and old, students, faculty, community members, charge. For the sake of of the master charge.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace and courage until again we meet in worship. Amen.